You're listening to a sermon from Plus Life, a church that exists to see lives changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our prayer is that you will be stirred in your heart and renewed in your mind as you hear the preaching of God's word today. Tell someone the title of my sermon tonight, The Heart for the Harvest. The Heart for the Harvest. For the past few weeks now, we've been looking into the story of the Samaritan woman and her life-changing encounter with Jesus. And as we've been seeing, this encounter isn't just another story in the long list of things that Jesus did in his three-year ministry. There is intentionality to it. There is purpose for it. Even John, who is recalling it and writing this in his gospel, has a purpose and a reason for recalling this story of the Samaritan woman. If you remember John chapter 20, verse 30 to 31, the thesis of John's gospel says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his the, of the disciples, where which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Jesus did many other signs, according to John, and many other things uh, to the point where John says at the, at the end of his gospel that were every one of them written down, the world itself cannot contain the books uh, that would be written. But these stories, these stories are written down specifically so that we might believe. Believe that Jesus truly is the Christ, the, the Messiah, the, the anointed one of God, and that he truly is the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, God incarnate, so that by believing we might have life in his name. As we've been saying, John's gospel is an evangelistic gospel meant to convey the spiritual truths both to believers and unbelievers. And with it being an evangelistic gospel, it's only natural for it to contain some instruction in how we are to evangelize or share the gospel to unbelievers and examples of how we can how we can share these truths from this gospel to share the good news for those who are lost and uh, those who are unbelievers the story of the samaritan woman has been doing just that not only does it show the the savior's heart for the lost his desire to save sinners to call them to repentance but as we discussed last week, it also provides a sort of a, of a blueprint on how to share the gospel to the lost. We are to connect with the sinner, as we talked about last week, show grace, uh, speak the truth as well, and point them to Christ. And so for the past two weeks, we've talked about the message of the gospel, as well as the, uh, uh, as well as the method of sharing the gospel. This week, as we come towards the end of this Samaritan encounter, we come to the Savior's mission of the gospel, the mission that he gives to the disciples, Jesus' explicit instructions to his disciples regarding evangelism. But what we see is that more than just a command, Jesus is conditioning their hearts, the hearts of the disciples, so that they would truly have a heart for the lost. This wasn't just a commission for them to obey, but a correction of the heart. Jesus wanted, wanted them to see sinners as he did, to see the mission, the, the work of salvation as he did, and that requires a heart, a perspective change that Jesus addresses in this passage tonight. And church, that's our goal for this evening. My desire is to unpack what Jesus tells his disciples in an effort to condition our own hearts, to change our own attitudes towards evangelism and reaching the lost. Because if we've been seeing evangelism as something that only pastors or evangelists do, or, or just 
one of the, the, the many commands that Christians are supposed to keep, but is not the highest priority. Or if we see evangelism as something that we can casually do on our spare time, or if we feel like it, or when it comes up, or the opportunity arises, beloved, that needs to change. Listen, if we are apathetic towards the salvation of the lost, how can we truly say that we understand the gospel? How can we truly say that we believe that God is a holy God and that His wrath is towards sinners, yet be complacent towards warning sinners? How can we truly say that we carry the greatest message of truth, of hope, of love, and yet not be excited enough to share the gospel? But Pastor Ian... God is sovereign. He's going to save the elect anyways. All right there, Calvin. Um, This is honestly the number one excuse that I hear from Christians all the time to excuse their apathy towards the lost. And let's nip this in the bud right away. If this is your mentality sharing the gospel, sharing the gospel, if you think this way, you are living in direct disobedience to Christ's command to go and make disciples. If this is your mentality, that you have, that then you have disowned God, your God-given responsibility to go and preach the gospel to the lost. And listen, if you truly understood the doctrines of grace, of Reformed theology, you would understand that God's sovereignty does not deny human responsibility. In fact, what we see in Scripture is that our human responsibility is the means by which God enacts His sovereign will. Paul even says very clearly in Romans chapter 10, verse 13 to 15, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's God's salvific work. Then in verse 14, he says, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Our human responsibility of sharing the gospel is the means by which God sovereignly saves individuals. God in his sovereignty gives us the responsibility to go and preach so that people would hear and believe and call on the name of Jesus Christ to be saved. Listen, we don't evangelize in spite of God's sovereignty. We evangelize because of God's sovereignty. We evangelize knowing that His Word does not return void. We evangelize because we know that God's will and purpose will be accomplished. We evangelize because we know that God is able to turn the most wretched heart, the most perverse, most evil, the most despicable and lost sinner in the world. We evangelize in hopes that to see the lost truly come to repentance and salvation, to the loving arms of a Savior. We evangelize because... God is sovereign and is mighty to save. And if that doesn't get you excited, then the sermon is for you. Because your heart for the loss and your attitude towards evangelism needs to change. And that's the same kind of heart that Jesus is trying to address with the disciples in this passage. So let's get into our passage. Everyone say, let's go. Our passage picks up right after Jesus' Jesus' interaction with this Samaritan woman. In verse 27, it says, Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, What do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So disciples come back. They were off looking for food. Earlier in the passage it says, They see the Samaritan woman just leaving, and they have no care in the world. They thought it was interesting that Jesus was talking to her, but that's as far as it goes. John even says, no one 
stop to consider what was she looking for or even ask why was Jesus talking with her? And as we've unpacked for the past two weeks now, this woman was indeed looking for something, something to truly fill her soul, something to satisfy her deep longings of her heart. And we know, and we know for sure why Jesus was talking to her, why Jesus made that detour through Samaria just to be at this well at noontime to speak with a Samaritan woman. It was to offer her living waters, salvation, forgiveness of sin, freedom from sin, eternal life. There was a reason for it. Yet none of the disciples even considered this or are, are even curious enough to ask why. They were apathetic, probably just thinking, oh, well, Jesus is probably just being Jesus, right? They weren't concerned all, at all about this woman. She, she's leaving. What's there to be concerned about? Our passage actually tells us what the disciples were really concerned about, right? In verse 31 of our passage, it says, after the woman, so after the woman leaves and goes back to town, it says it in verse 31, meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. They were concerned about Jesus eating, but not for the reasons you'd think. It goes on to say, verse 32, but he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? In ancient times, the relationship between disciple and rabbi dictated that the true disciples, in an effort to show honor and respect to their teacher, to their master, or their, their rabbi, would go and acquire food and lodging during their travels. Now you can imagine the sort of competition this would brew amongst disciples. One disciple would bring back a piece of bread. One disciple would bring back a piece of fish. Another disciple would bring back osmos or something, right? hoping that their provision, whatever they brought back, would be the one that the rabbi eats and be satisfied by. And so the disciples' comment of, has anyone brought him something to eat, is really saying, who got to Jesus first? Who got to feed him first? Who got, to honor, who, who got the honor of giving him something that would satisfy his physical need? So these disciples had no care in the world except for except for who would receive the greater honor, the greater glory for bringing something to Jesus to eat. They were more concerned about who, who would be called the, the best disciple or the teacher's pet, so to speak. And we see examples of this elsewhere in the gospel. Uh, the apostle John's own mother in Matthew chapter 20 asked Jesus to put him and his brother James at the positions of honor in the left hand and the right hand of Christ. Of course, and there's this competition. There's a, a desire for this place of honor. Well... These disciples were so concerned about their spiritual status that they failed to even be concerned about the Samaritan woman that was just talking to Christ. And church, isn't that a, a spitting image of how our hearts is sometimes towards evangelism? I think the number one reason why we grow apathetic towards sharing the gospel to the lost is not because we don't know what to say or maybe the lack of opportunity or we're afraid of rejection. No, I think the number one reason why we grow apathetic towards sharing the gospel to the lost is because we are more focused and more concerned about ourselves. Our walk with Christ, our personal relationship with Christ, or our problems and our issues in life, the things that we want God to address in our lives, our lack of concern for the loss is due to the abundance of concern that we have for ourselves. I can't be bothered about another person's salvation right now when I'm still trying to work out my own, right? Tell that to your unbelieving loved one who's still under the wrath of God. 
Sorry, I can't share the gospel to you. I'm still waiting on God for a breakthrough in my life. Tell that to your brother or sister, your parent that is under the wrath of God, and if they died tonight, they would go to hell. Listen, church, this is the kind of heart that Jesus is trying to address in our passage. The kind of heart we need to address if we want to be a disciple-making church and truly live out the Great Commission. Folks, there are loved ones in our lives who are still living under, as I said, the wrath of God. And unless we get over ourselves and truly take to heart this responsibility of sharing the gospel to unbelievers, how can we truly say that we love them? That we want the best for our unbelieving relative or friend or co-worker. Our perspective, our attitude towards evangelism and the work of God has to change. And Jesus shows us how. He addresses it in our passage. Look at verse 34. Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Jesus is referring to Deuteronomy 8, verse 3 here. Know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. If you remember, he quotes this exact same passage when he's being tempted by the devil in the wilderness. This is talking about obedience to the word, the commands, the precepts, the precepts of God, and, and that being where we find satisfaction. That being where we find joy beyond the, 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 the physical need and and that which is addresses our spiritual need. Jesus found satisfaction in doing the will and the work of God. What is the will of God? It's for sinners to be saved. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7 to 10 says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. His will is to, to cleanse sinners, to bring forgiveness, to bring redemption. God's will, his desire, is to save sinners, to reconcile them to himself. What is the work of God that Jesus speaks of here? It's redemption, it's salvation. For God so loved the world that he sent, that he gave his son, whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Jesus was sent to seek and save that which was lost. God in the Old Testament is often called the Savior, the, the Redeemer, our refuge, our ever-present help in times of trouble. Understand, these aren't just names of God. These are descriptions of who God is, what, his, what is in his divine character. God in his nature, in his eternal being, is a saving God, the God of salvation. The same way that he is the God of love, the God of justice, the God of truth, the God of love, uh, of life. God in his nature is the God of salvation, the source of salvation, the one in whom we find the meaning and definition of salvation. He is the savior of the world to all sinners. And the implicit way he shows us is by not giving sinners what they deserve when they deserve it. Because if he did, we would all be in trouble. We would be all sent to hell the moment that we first sin. Yet God in his salvific nature demonstrates patience and grace in the hopes that we would repent and rely on him for salvation. 2 Peter 3.9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Paul says in Romans 2.4 that the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience is meant to lead us to repentance. 
God is a saving God. So naturally, he, his will and work is for salvation. And being part of that work, doing God's will, is food for Jesus, as our, as our passage says. It goes, on, it goes beyond a physical contentment and goes, deep to a, goes to a deeper joyful satisfaction. Sharing the gospel for Christ brought him joy. It brought him joy. Look at Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. It says, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. It brought pleasure to Christ, joy to Christ for doing the will of the Father, doing the work of salvation, even, even if it brought him to the cross. He delighted in it. He, he, he found joy in pursuing the loss and sharing the good news of God's salvific work. And church, if we want to adjust our attitude, or our, our hearts towards evangelism, then we must find satisfaction in the harvest. Find satisfaction in the harvest. We must delight, find joy in seeing others come to Christ as well, in seeing lives changed by the gospel. In Luke 15, Jesus describes the work of salvation in three parables. The parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, and of course the prodigal son. Now if you know the parables, at the end of each story, there's a celebration, there's rejoicing that takes place. Jesus even says that there's more joy in heaven for that one sinner who returns or who repents over that 99 righteous people who do not repent. He says that even the angels rejoice when the sinners come home. So how much more us, us who have experienced that same salvation, who has tasted and seen that the Lord is good, it should bring us just as much delight and satisfaction seeing others come to Christ, knowing that they are experiencing the same grace, the same mercy that you have experienced. It should bring us joy to know that we are doing the will and work of our Heavenly Father when we go and share the gospel. And not only that, but that when we go and share the gospel, when we do his will, when we do his work, it actually brings joy and pleasure to God himself. You know, uh, my son Judah is at that age where he's starting to pick up things, and, and so I've started to share some of my Superman comics with him. You know, teach them while they're young, right? And he's been enjoying them, right? He's been saying, da-da, da-da, Superman, Superman, Superman. And he'll ask me to read... Uh, some comics to him before he goes to sleep at night. Dad, that read Superman. It's Superman, but it's not Campbell's. Right? It's not Campbell's soup. It's Superman. Uh, and like a good father, of course, right? I, I, I wouldn't want to withhold from him the pleasures of reading some Superman comics, obviously. But let me tell you, as a father, it brings me so much joy to see my son enjoying the things that I like and the things that I am passionate about. How much more God? How much more our Heavenly Father? How much joy and delight could we bring to God if only we found joy and delight in His will and work to save the lost? Jesus did this all the time. In John chapter 8, verse 29, Jesus Himself says, He who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always, always do the things that are pleasing to Him. And we even see the Father declare his pleasure over the Son throughout the Gospels. Literally, a voice from the heavens saying, He is my beloved Son with whom I am well 
pleased. Why? Because Jesus was doing the will and work of God. So listen, if you are concerned and worried about your own walk with God or how you can bring glory and pleasure to God, or if you are trying to figure out God's will for you and his purposes for you, listen, stick to what's clear in Scripture. Stick to what's clear. And, and, and Pastor John Piper puts it the best, right? God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. When we delight and rejoice in what brings him joy, namely his will and work to bring sinners to salvation, God is glorified all the more. And he delights in that. We must think of evangelism in this way, a means in which we can bring joy to our Heavenly Father. This is where Christ's satisfaction was in, what was filling him more than just the physical need for food, the joy of doing the will and work of God. Church, ask yourself, is what you have been pursuing in this life truly bringing joy and pleasure to our Heavenly Father? Do you find satisfaction in doing the will and work of God? Because someone who truly is a child of God, someone who knows the gospel, the, the doctrines of grace, who has personally experienced it, with, would rejoice and delight in seeing others come to salvation more than the angels of heaven. If we want to have a heart for the harvest, then like Jesus, we, might, we must find satisfaction, joy, delight, pleasure in the harvest, in what, in what brings joy and pleasure to God. And Jesus, of course, takes this even further. Look at verse 35 of our passage. He says, Do you not say there are yet four months then comes the harvest? As an illustration, Jesus brings up this agricultural season, the seasons of harvest. And how fitting, because remember where they were. They're in, in verse 5, it recalls how they're in the middle of a field, the field that Jacob gave to his son Joseph at this well. They would have been surrounded by wheat and crops, further illustrating Jesus' point. What Jesus is referring to is the time it takes for crops to mature and ripen for the harvest. Seeds would be planted towards the end of fall, sometime around November, and it would be ready four months later to be harvested towards, uh, sometime towards the spring, uh, March or April. So what Jesus is saying is that there's a time for sowing and a time for harvesting, reaping. But then he says, look, I tell you, Lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Crops would sprout this white fluff at the top of, uh, at the top of their, the fruit, indicating that they are ready to be harvested. But notice what Jesus is telling these disciples to see, what he's telling these disciples to notice. What is this illustration about? He says, lift up your eyes and see. See what? The fields around them? No. Go back to verse 28. So the woman left her water jar and went away to town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? In verse 30 it says, They went out of the town and were coming to him. So in the middle of this field, Jesus is giving this illustration about a time of sowing and a time of reaping. As he, and as he does, the Samaritans are marching over to meet him, to see this Messiah that this woman was talking about. 
So when Jesus says, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest, he's talking about these Samaritans who are on the way to hear the good news, who who are ready to believe, who are ready to receive forgiveness and salvation. And understand Jesus' intention with this illustration. When, When crops are ready to harvest, you only have a limited amount of time before they wither and die. So there is a sense of urgency that Jesus is trying to convey to his disciples he wants, to see, he wants them to see that the harvest, namely the lost, the unbelievers, are ready to be brought in, ready to believe unto salvation. Jesus even adds in verse 36, Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. He's saying the work of the harvest has already begun and it's already yielding its fruit, already bringing joy to the sower and the reaper. Who is the sower? Well, remember from chapter 3, it's God, it's the Holy Spirit, the one who replaces the heart of stone with a heart of flesh, the one who cultivates the heart for good soil so that it would be regenerated and receive the gospel. And in this case, the reaper in, in this passage is Jesus, the one who just shared the gospel to the Samaritan woman. So both sower and reaper are now receiving their wages because the harvest is here. Jesus wants his disciples to have that same urgency, the same level of excitement, knowing that there were souls ready to be saved, ready to be harvested for eternal life. In the same way, if if we want our hearts to change towards evangelism, we must feel an urgency for the harvest, feel an urgency for the harvest. There must be in us a sense that the time is now to share the gospel. The time is now to see lives changed by the gospel. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 1 to 2, Working together with him, then we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, In a favorable time I listened to you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. There must be in us a sense of urgency and an awareness that God is calling sinners to repentance today. That God is going to save people today. That God can use us to to bring the harvest in today. Church, where is that urgency for the gospel? Again, the illustration is very clear, right? There is a limited time in which the harvest is ready to be picked. Beyond that, it spoils and withers. In the same way, life is short. James says, what is your life? It's like a mist, a vapor in the wind. Here a little time and gone the next. Listen, if if this past year and a half has taught us anything, is that death plays no favorites. Whether you are young or old, healthy or unhealthy, vaccinated or unvaccinated, when it's your time to go, it's time to go. People need to hear the gospel. People need to hear the only hope for salvation, the only way to eternal life. Church, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. See the increase in in mental health issues and people considering suicide as a viable option instead of living in this world. See the unrest, the the, the brokenness, the, the fear that's gripped our entire world. The world needs hope. It needs peace. The world needs truth. The world needs to know that God has made a way to be reconciled unto him. And we must have an urgency to share that truth. 
as mentioned earlier, oftentimes the reason why we are apathetic towards evangelism is often due to the fact that we are more concerned for ourselves. Our problems weigh more heavily on our minds than the reality of people dying and going to hell. Church, we must stop living for ourselves. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14, For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, that for all have died, and he died for all, and those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. We are to live for Christ. This love for Christ is meant to, to control us, as our pa- that passage says. The original word for control there is suneko, meaning to be seized by, to be held, to be compelled together by. The love of Christ compels us to no longer live for ourselves, but rather to live for him who died for us, Jesus Christ. And how do we live for him? Well, Paul says later in that same chapter, we are to be ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. Appeal, parakaleo, to beseech, to a desperate plea for sinners to repent and be reconciled. God is making that kind of of appeal through us. That's an urgency, that's an awareness that we don't have much time in this life to, to call sinners home. Church, the harvest is now. We mustn't be found idly standing by. Again, how can we? Knowing that we have family and friends and parents and brothers and sisters who are still under the the wrath of a holy God. We must make every effort, take every opportunity to make God's appeal to them. We must feel an urgency for the harvest Let's go back to our passage here because Jesus makes one last point concerning how the disciples should see evangelism and this harvest that we've been talking about. Look at verse 37. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. As mentioned, the one who is sowing in the context of John's gospel thus far is the Holy Spirit. But now the identity of the reaper changes because in verse 38, Jesus says, I sent you to reap. Those who reap are now the disciples. It was the disciples' mission now to bring in the harvest. But Jesus adds in verse 38, I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. See, it wasn't normal for the sower and the reaper to be two different people. A farmer plants the seed, he nourishes the crops, he he cultivates the crops, and when harvest time comes, he he reaps the fruit and brings in the harvest. It's all on him. It's his work. It's for his benefit, the sowing and reaping. Jesus is saying to his disciples, I'm sending you now to bring in the harvest from a field that you did not sow, that you did not labor or plant in. Someone else has done the work of preparing the soil, of planting the seed of the gospel, and all you have to do is reap that which you did not labor for and share in the joy and the fruits and the, and the wages of the harvest. Jesus is indicating the privilege that the disciples have in partnering with God in, to, to bring unbelievers to himself, to witness life change occur. And church, we have that same privilege. 
We have the privilege of partnering with God to bring the gospel to the lost and to rejoice with Him when they repent and believe. Listen, evangelism is a privilege, not a punishment, not a burden, not a chore, not something to be reluctant over. Evangelism is the privilege of partnering with God to pardon sinners. Listen, if we want our attitude about evangelism to change, if we want to have a heart for the harvest, then we must focus on the privilege of the harvest. Focus on the privilege of the harvest. Let's go back to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 18 this time. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. The very will and work that Jesus delighted and found satisfaction in that he mentioned earlier in our text, he's now giving that same ministry, that same work to us. In verse 19 it says, That is, in Christ was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Understand the privilege of this, that a holy God, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, is sending us to be his ambassadors, to be his representatives, to share the gospel to the lost. There is a privilege there, a duty to be kept. You can't just squander that honor, that privilege, by not being an ambassador, by not sharing the message of reconciliation. In ancient times, when, when kings would send out their their heralds, their, their ambassadors. It was only when there was an urgent message for the people to hear, to, for, for them to convey. And listen, the, the ambassador had the privilege to, of, of representing the king, to be the king's voice to the people, to communicate the king's will to the people, to proclaim the king's heart to the people. So let me ask you, church, what does your life say about God's heart for the sinner? With what you say and tell your unbelieving loved ones, your friends, your co-workers, what is the message you are conveying them, conveying to them from God? Because listen, your apathy towards sinners says that God is apathetic towards them as well. Your lack of care for their eternal destiny tells them that God doesn't care either. Maybe the world wouldn't feel so lost and alone like no one cares if they heard from us that God does care, that God does love them, that God has made a way, that God has God desires for them to repent and be reconciled to himself. This is why we are called to let our manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. What we say and how we live is meant to be a testimony of the message that we are called to bring to the lost. Church, understand this is a privilege that we have. Evangelism is a privilege that we have. That God would take sinners like us, unworthy, undeserving, yet calls us his ambassadors, calls us his representatives to a fallen world, a title that we don't deserve at all. And we can never earn but it's not without reason. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5, he says, For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, 
with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. The reason why he calls us ambassadors, the reason why he houses his glory, his treasure of the gospel in us who are simply jars of clay is to communicate the great mercies and the grace that is available to all sinners if they only come to God in faith. Don't squander your privilege. If we want to have heart for the harvest, we must focus on the privilege of the harvest, of what we have as ambassadors of Christ. God making this appeal through us. What's interesting about our passage is there's a twist ending. John becomes like M. Night Shyamalan here. Verse 39, look at this. Many Samaritans from the town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with him. And he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe. For we have heard for ourselves and we know that this is indeed the savior of the world. The twist ending here is that it's not the disciples who ends up reaping the harvest. I don't think they were ready yet. But who does end up reaping the harvest and and sharing the joy of it, the fruit of it. It's the Samaritan woman herself. By her testimony, by this sinner saved by grace testimony, she leads many of the townspeople to salvation. Church, ask yourself, do you have a heart for the harvest? Firstly, do you find satisfaction in the will and the work of God? In, in bringing joy and pleasure to the Father by obedience, by following His will, by, by going and doing His work of sharing the gospel? Do you feel an urgency for the harvest? Is there something in you that is compelling you to go and and share the the gospel to the lost and your lost loved ones and friends and co-workers do you see that sharing the gospel is a privilege though we are unworthy though we are undeserving God still chooses us to be his ambassadors to make his appeal on his behalf How have you been representing God in the world? What is the message that God has been declaring to the world through you? At the end of your life, when you come face to face with our master, Jesus Christ, could you confidently say that Jesus would tell you, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Could you confidently say that when you come face to face with our Savior, 
that that will be the words that he tells you. Church, let's go and share the gospel. Let's recall how we serve a holy God. And yet we have fallen short. We have failed in our sin. But God, being loving and gracious and merciful, sends his son to die on our behalf, to take the punishment that we deserve on the cross. And to seal it all, give us resurrection life, just as he raised from the dead. And all we have to do is believe. That is the gospel that we are to share. And that's the gospel that we come to remember when we participate at the Lord's table. In just a few moments, we're going to have the volunteers distribute the elements for communion. But remember what this table is to represent. The body that was broken for us, the body that received our chastisement, the body that received the nails that should have been in our hands, the blood that was poured out for us, for our cleansing, for our forgiveness, so that we can stand holy and righteous before God. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, that whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. What's Paul talking about here? He's saying that if you have truly not reconciled these elements to your heart, if you have truly not, if you haven't really believed in the, the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross, then taking, partaking in these elements, you would be doing so in an unworthy manner. This table is meant to be for believers. Those who have truly put their faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. And so I ask you to examine your hearts this evening. If you have yet to truly do that, if you have yet to put your faith in, in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, I ask you to just let this table pass. Let the elements pass. But even if you are a believer... I ask you to examine your hearts this evening. If there is any hidden sin, unconfessed sin, anything that, that has strained your, 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 your fellowship with God this evening, I pray that you would confess that to him this evening. In this quiet time, in this sacred moment, that all of us would just meet with God. Ask the Holy Spirit to reveal to you anything that has been hidden from you, your, your sight. Ask the Holy Spirit to convict you of any sin, any relationship that needs to be reconciled. Because again, as Paul says, for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. Do not partake of these elements in an unworthy manner this evening. Let's take this time to pray, to speak with the Lord.
examine your hearts. Stand with me. In your hands, you should have two elements. One seal is for the bread, and the other seal is for the cup, the juice. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, For I received from the Lord... But I also delivered to you that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks he broke it and said this is my body which is for you do this in remembrance of me let's partake of the bread together Lord we remember the body that took our lashes the body that was beaten and bruised on our behalf so that we might have healing I pray oh God that we would not take for granted the life that you have afforded us through your death through your broken body I pray that you would be glorified oh God In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's partake of the cup together. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, I pray that we would proclaim the gospel. 
I pray, oh God, that we would proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. The reality that you have sent your son to make a way that we might be reconciled, might have a right relationship with you, oh holy God. Despite us being sinners, despite us having having been wretched and, and the most sinful of people, yet you, out of your love, out of your mercy and grace, have chosen to save us. Has enacted your will and your work to draw us to you by your grace that we might be saved from your wrath. Oh Lord God, we ask that you'd help us in the endeavor of sharing the gospel to our loved ones who do not know you. I pray, oh God, that you would give us a desire, a passion, an urgency to proclaim the gospel, to, to proclaim the good news in a world that is so lost and is in need of hope and of peace and of truth and of love. Help us, Holy Spirit, because we cannot do this on our own. It's not by might nor by power, but by you, Holy Spirit, that we can go and endeavor to see lives changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. So God, have your hand upon your church, upon your people this evening. And I pray, oh God, that you would receive these offerings of praise. In your name, Lord Jesus, we pray these things. Amen and amen. Thanks for listening. We hope that you were blessed by the sermon today. If you would like to learn about the gospel or know more about our church, please visit pluslifepeople.com. Remember to subscribe for more content. Until next time, stay blessed.